0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My, I am Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, and today I will be talking to Dr. Kali Kananoya about his book, Healing Knowledge in Atlantic Africa, Medical Encounters, 1500 to 1850 published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Dr. Kananoja is lecturer in science and ideas at the University of Oulu. Dr. Kananoja, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you very much, Esperanza. Um,
1: I wonder if you could uh, begin, uh, we could begin this interview by you telling us a little bit about yourself.
2: Yeah, sure. So I'm now based at the University of Oulu in northern Finland, but I Began my studies at the University of Helsinki uh, in 1999 and went to major in, in African studies, uh, which in Helsinki is very much uh, geared towards linguistic rather than cultural studies. So, as part of my early training, I, I started learning Kiswahili, uh, but began to drift towards African history uh, very early in my studies. However, one of my teachers in, in Swahili was a former missionary and theologian named Rai Harjula who had worked in, in Tanzania uh, in the 1970s and had also worked uh, on medical anthropology, uh, conducting a study on, on an individual herbalist. So this was published uh, as a book uh, with the title Mirau and his Practice in 1980. And as a student, I I picked up this book and read it with curiosity, but it didn't really spark anything in me at that time. Uh, It was like my first exposure to to medicine in Africa. So the topic might have been too foreign and difficult for me to really enjoy it. However, I think it probably planted some seeds within me. and, And gradually as I drifted more towards studying African spiritual practices uh, and their history, Harila's work became quite a big influence for me. Another key piece of literature that inspired me after finishing my MA studies was uh, James Weed's Recreating Africa, which I remember reading uh, when I was contemplating whether to continue for a PhD. So that book, uh, along with Linda Haywood's edited volume on on the Central African diaspora, started me on a very different path path, uh, and took me to study Central Africans in 18th century Brazil, very much focusing on ethnic identities and their transformations uh, as well as religious practices. So uh, as you can probably imagine, African history is, is a very marginal subject in Finland although we have uh, strong historical connections with, with uh, Southwest Africa, with Namibia, uh, and to a lesser extent with Tanzania. But the academic scene is in, in African history is limited to about a dozen or maybe 15 scholars, and that's already counting the, the current PhD students and, and postdocs. But I was very lucky uh, to always have good teachers, uh, good mentors, now colleagues, uh, people like Holger Weiss, Juhani Koponen, uh, Harri Siiskonen, and Markku Hokkanen, who showed me uh, how uh, African history is done and and who all published at a high international level and pushed me to do the same. And who also continue to contribute to, to the relevant discussions in our field. So that was always very uh, inspirational, very supportive and also facilitated my work uh, on the book we're going to talk about today, Healing Knowledge in Atlantic Africa.
1: Um, So uh, how specifically did you come to uh, uh, work in this book? When did it start uh, taking shape in first in in your head and then uh, how did it uh, start to happen
2: right so uh, I finished my PhD in 2012 so nine years ago and then spent a year at the European University Institute in Florence in Italy but then I received a a three-year grant from the Academy of Finland to to work solely on this project uh, and had another year of funding from the Helsinki Collegium of, of Advanced Study, which of course all this uh, generous support helped me to, uh, to conduct archival research uh, and ended up spending several months uh, in Portugal to research this book. So that was of course uh, the, the, the first step, to, was to have that, the, that uh, funding in place. But intellectually, I mean, uh, I was very inspired, like I said, uh, James Wheat, and uh, inspired by this whole historiography on, on African healing practices in the Americas. And at the same time, I was very uh, frustrated about how little all the scholarship had to say about Africa and medicine in Africa. And how even some of the best studies that set out to write about these topics using an atlantic history framework didn't really focus on africa at all um, there were exceptions exceptions of course and, and sure i had read uh, john thornton's uh, african africans in the making of the atlantic world as well as james wheat's second book about Domingos alvarez uh, but even those two books um, took the narrative out of africa whereas in my own book i wanted to that the focus to remain only on the African continent. So uh, uh, partially I was writing in reaction to the developments that were taking place in the much larger fields of American and Atlantic as well as African diaspora history and how healing and health and medicine were being taken seriously by scholars in these fields. At the same time, I was also going against the grain in, in pre-colonial African history, uh, where the narrative was always super focused on the Atlantic slave trade and, and enslavement of Africans. And now, of course, I'm not saying that slavery shouldn't be a focus area of, of African history, but personally, I wanted to experiment whether I can uh, write about this period uh, in global history and and about these parts of the world without putting the African experiences of of enslavement at the center. Uh, also during my already during my PhD research on, on slavery in Brazil, I had started gathering material and on, on, on Angola and Congo in, in Portuguese archives. So mainly in the overseas archives, uh, Arquivo Histórico Ultramarino, and the Portuguese National Archives in in Toro do Tombo, where I worked mostly on the inquisitional records, so I had a hunch of the materials that I I could expect to find there and that would need it for the study, and and I had already transcribed or digitalized some some sources that offered material for writing about uh, health and medicine in African history, so that's how I was able also able to sell the project to the funding agencies, Uh, although I, I couldn't be Really sure that in the end I would end up with enough material for a book-length study. As I dug deeper in this topic, however, I also uh, discovered that uh, quite a few Portuguese scholars had had also written about topics related to medicine and disease. So, so this appeared in obscure articles uh, in all kinds of colonial journals and and bulletins uh, during the first half of the 20th century. And that helped me as well in, in in locating more materials and and build a bigger picture out of this very sporadic and and sketchy uh, documentation.
1: Uh, One thing that as I was reading um, through the book, I was wondering whether it was in the in those early sources, in those early inquis- uh, inquisition sources. Where you started to, uh, I mean, the 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 main argument in your book, you know, the, this uh, the existence of this crossover and, and this uh, ultimately this kind of hybridization um, of of medical practices. Uh, in a way, it's also quite. Uh, I mean, it's not it's not necessarily something that I think. I, as I was reading, I was thinking, well, I should have I should have expected it, but I've never seen it actually written down or like demonstrated and illustrated in the way that you did it. And I was wondering whether it was a, a, a reading those Inquisition uh, sources that you first started to get a sense that, you know, that this was the case in the first place, but also that uh, you, you could be able to, uh, to show it, you know, to, to, to write, if not even a whole book, but just to, to sustain an argument around along those lines.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was it was very evident in those Inquisition sources that uh, there, there was uh, and the same thing happened in Brazil, of course. That um, there were always these uh, Portuguese men because they were usually uh, men who who went as as soldiers and and officers to Angola. So very often it was the case that uh the Portuguese men uh were using the services if we can say that the, the services of, of African healers and uh and there's all there was always this uh cross cultural interaction so so in in the rituals you could see evidence that uh it was not it, it was Europeans and Africans together who who participated in these in these rituals uh yeah so so that kind of medical pluralism uh, not only in the sense that uh african healing practices themselves were were pr- plural so you had many kinds of uh different kinds of specialists uh doing uh all all sorts of, of healing and then then also s- sorts of uh european practitioners who who fumbled around uh, on the African continent, and and try to to figure out a way a way to health, so to speak. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but of course, these you know the, the methodological issues were huge in in trying to tease out the the, the presence and the actual powers of African healers. I mean, uh, for the most part, the Portuguese sources uh, remain silent on issues of of, of health and healing. They have healers have an uh, almost invisible presence in this uh, creolized or hybridized landscapes of Angola. So they are usually present only when there's so, some sort of uh, a clash of cultures. So so when someone ch- judges them and they practice. And here, of course, the, the inquisition trials uh, and denunciations, uh, which Paradoxically, despite all these biases still remain the best sources we have on African healers and healing in the early modern world. But this is, of course, a a conceptual problem in in that the Portuguese very rarely referred to African healers as healers, you know, using the the Portuguese word, uh, curandeiro. Mm -hmm. So they are mostly referred to as as "feiticeiros," "feiticeiras." which to the to the English and the Dutch in West Africa would uh, translate as the the, the fetish men. So that is someone who uses power objects or or harnesses these uh, spiritual entities to either heal or to harm others. So the so the obvious uh, issue here, uh, the methodological issue here, is that Africans very rarely in these sources get to present their own point of view uh they are usually presented in negative light by author- or authorities who condemn their practice mm. mm-hmm. then there's also uh, i use a lot of the, the italian uh, capuchin materials which complement the inquisition sources uh and there we can see these glimpses of of uh the internal pluralism of, of african medicine like or uh, like i have in one of the chapters i have a, list of healer titles uh, compiled by the Capuchin Cavazzi uh, in the 17th century. So we have healers such as uh, the Shingilas who specialized in healing by spirit possession, uh, then others who who prepared and sold different types of, of talismans and medicines to ailing patients. So while it's still biased and uh, judgmental, it's, it's also, you know, the Capuchins were at least attempting to understand how the how the medical marketplace uh if we want to use that expression uh functioned in in uh central africa and then we can uh, go on to contrast that at least by Cavazzi with, with with another type of uh typology which was drawn up by the uh, missionary uh giuseppe monari uh, so where he put this the central african healers into you know the three categories the good the wicked, and the bad and the good are the the ones who who relied on you know the good healers rely only on herbal medicine and medicinal roots. Uh, and monari also thinks that they are a little bit like the the surgeons he he actually were uses the word surgeon uh, to describe these uh, uh healers the, you know the herbalists but then we have Others who use not only herbs, but also rely on these uh, super superstitious, uh, what, what, what Monadi calls the superstitious words, uh, incantations. So mixed herbal and spiritual practice. And then we had the, the bad healers who only healed by spirit possession and, and, you know, try to keep this ritual secret. So, you know, methodologically, again, this this kind of moral taxonomy doesn't help us get very far. Uh, But I think it's helpful for understanding that early modern observers uh, who were outsiders to African societies also realized these, you know, the the basic divisions and the the basic uh, medical uh, plurality, you know, that African societies were medically plural societies where different kinds of healers com- compete you know they competed with with each other but also complemented each other
1: mm-hmm. um and, and i mean you, you spend uh, your first chapter uh, sort of like uh, detailing the, this plurality uh, and, and in a way it, it, uh, it like you said it also helps us uh, understand um uh, sort of like the the understand the, the conception of of disease you know what what you you make this general distinction between um, diseases of th- the body, physical diseases, and and, uh, and and the ones that were dealt with more specifically, or diseases of of, of human or men uh, or social diseases uh, that tended to be dealt more like with the spiritual healers, or you know, there wasn't a necess- always a clear distinction, but uh, but it's interesting how. Uh, that um, through the understanding of the different of this pluralism it also gives us a gives an entry gives us an entry into um, into how they understood ailments and and different kinds of ailments and and and, uh, and uh, among Africans but what I think it is, is particularly insightful in your study is as you follow it through you start showing how, Partly, one of the reasons why the Portuguese, um, especially in, in, in Central Africa, uh, were able to perceive this is because this was not so alien to them. You know, they they themselves, uh, in in early modern Europe itself, uh, this conceptualization of disease was was not so far out from what they had experienced themselves. Could you um, could you start? Tell us a little bit about how, how you came to that insight, and how that became apparent to you.
2: Yeah, of course, of course, I'm I'm not the first one to success it. <laughs> yeah, so, I know. <laughs> so so others others before me have have written about uh you know the the Portuguese you know and of course the Portuguese themselves you know in in Portugal. Uh, already had Inquisition, and you know you have, you know the same same kind of uh, medical pluralism also in. in forgeable so Mm -hmm. um so i i think it was only you know uh natural and i i think in that sense it's it's also very important that for pre-colonial africa that uh that we also try to connect it to uh historiographies in in other fields like you know like it's being done in 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 atlantic history now but you know we also have to be Aware of these uh, developments in in American and European history, and that's that's really what I was trying to do throughout the book. That you know I was uh, trying to combine all these all these different historiographies uh, and see uh, whether you know it's you know to me it often seems that uh, Finnish society or or you know not on, not only Early modern Africa and and early modern Finland are similar in many ways, but you know also also for later periods and you know how this uh, how the development of human societies goes through these stages and you know sometimes you know uh, one societies twenty or thirty years before the others, but you know it seems to me that uh, many of these uh, lines can be can be found. Uh, Throughout
1: the world, mhm Yeah, no, and and again, I think one of the interesting, I mean, sort of emphasis I think in the book is uh, a more balanced approach to between difference and 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 common ground, uh, in the sense that there's there's a good uh, an attempt to understand not only a lot of times like you said in the, the 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 cross-cultural encounter it focuses in areas of conflict in which the, the emphasis is on what make these two groups or what made these two cultures different uh, and and obviously there's some of that uh, and and especially in in the inquisition in the inquisition uh, cases of course but what I liked about your book is that you balance it really well with uh, very uh, compelling arguments about the existence of this common ground and and in some ways why, and also the historicity of this common ground in the sense like in in your second chapter, for instance, you move into uh, just the specificity of this, uh, of of the the materials that were used, uh, the remedies, the specific things that were used and, uh, uh, And how some of them were adopted by Portuguese, how Africans themselves were curious about European remedies, etc. There was this pragmatism about, you know, what each of them could use. And but of course, this this uh, in both cases there was uh, experimentation, there was trying things out. And um, so again, it sort of shows that these even this level of communication could not have taken place without a sense of. of both cultures uh, or all these different cultures uh, that giving a certain amount of value to this particular type of materials and knowledge um, and, and I think that's a, uh again that's a balance that we often do not find in a lot of studies that that look at cross-cultural encounters
2: yeah I I think it's very interesting you know in the in the second chapter when we turn to uh, questions of uh, materiality of medicine so that you know the sources i use the the overall tone is much more positive you know uh, mm-hmm. in the way that there's much less uh condemnation and and it shows more the curiosity of of you know the different sides of of these exchanges so the principal issue here of course is that africans and europeans uh, both had to find ways to survive somehow so, what do you do when your own medicine fails or isn't available to you to start with? So you always turn to the local ingredients, uh, local resources. At first, this is this is a matter of of survival, and in in Atlantic Africa, it doesn't really or didn't really develop into an uh, economic alternative uh, until in until in the 20th century. But the Portuguese started to envision this this medicinal trade uh, as an alternative to the slave trade already in the late 18th century. So uh, then we can also go on to ask why the African medicinals didn't arouse the same excitement in in Europe in the 17th and 18th century, but remained very marginal compared to the interest in Asian and American medicines. And I think the, the simple answer here is that the uh, there's there's a lack of direct contact between Africa, you know, going from Africa directly to Europe in this period. So we don't, we, we have all the ships are sailing from Africa to the Americas and also taking parts of this medicinal knowledge from Africa to the Americas, but not to Europe. So they are African medicinals were constantly becoming more popular uh, as as Londa Shipping and, our, and others have shown, so uh, more popular in the Americas than in Europe, and then this another uh, Atlantic crossing from America to Europe wasn't happening systematically, uh, or or the the African medicinals from the Americas did not go to to Europe, mm-hmm. and then there's also you know as I demonstrated that. The lack of overall scientific interest in Africa in the in the early modern period. So, so all the all the people who made these early modern collections of African medicinal materials uh, compiled this knowledge into manuscripts. So they were at best they were amateur botanists. Uh, we have we have very good listings of of Central African medicines um, that I showed there in the in the second chapter. One of these soldiers uh, was a Portuguese soldier, uh, Afonso Mendes, around 1650, uh, did, uh, compiled this knowledge uh, without explaining how he gathered it. Uh, so I would speculate that he learned about it, uh, maybe bought it from African soldiers, uh, possibly healers in the interior of Angola many other similar listings, you know, from uh, from the Capuchin missionaries. Uh, uh, what I found very interesting when looking at all these lists uh, over over time, you know, from the late 16th uh, through the 17th to the 18th century, was that certain medicinal plants were repeated over and over again. Uh, we have stuff like uh, plants like Takula, Kikongo, Uh, that remained in very popular use in Central Africa throughout the period uh, had strong continuities and sometimes you know the specific uses changed but uh, so so they might have been used for different diseases and ailments at different times but we can be positive that there was a constant market for these materials right Mm -hmm. Uh, it was not Necessarily an export market that we can trace statistically, but certainly these these local networks, uh, regional networks, were highly organized, and and uh, medicinals also moved around uh, around the place in these in these trading networks.
0: Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: I was interested in in um, how you try to sort of like move away from um, or try to sort of see if you could generalize test test your thesis into other areas of Atlantic Africa. And so, you, you in the first chapter you talk about the Gold Coast, and then in three, and then in four, you look at Sierra Leone, and and in some ways um, they do, of course, uh, uh, you know, add other dimensions to, to the story that you're telling. Um, and particularly in the case of Sierra Leone, it's not even just a geographic thing, but it's also like, a, like it advances the story a little bit uh, further uh, uh, chronologically. And, and it does help illustrate sort of the how uh, how and when, like the changing attitudes of Europeans towards uh, Africans in general also have an impact in the way in which uh, this medicine also are seen by Europeans. Um, could you tell us a little bit, how is it that, how did you decide that you wanted or needed to, to um, find examples in other parts of Atlantic Africa? Was this very hard? Uh, have you, did you have any idea that these materials existed? And then how did you go about integrating uh, your your findings into the book?
2: yeah so this you know the the chapters on on the cold coast and Sierra Leone uh, I wrote them originally as as one chapter and then then sp- decided to split them uh, when I was finishing the book and uh, really both chapters started with a very good question uh, at, a, at a conference by Mariana Candido mm-hmm. so so who asked me that you know if, at the end of the day, were the Portuguese really any different from other Europeans uh, who were active in West Africa? And uh, you know, in especially in me- in medical matters. And uh, of course, at the time, I I didn't have an answer, but I <laughs> decided to go go for it and and look for a uh, at least some kind of tentative answer and. Uh, Overall, I think it's a question that historians of pre you know, that type of, type of question is something that historians of pre-colonial Africa need to ask more often. Mm-hmm. Of course, we have this, you know, between regions we we have all kinds of political and and religious uh, differences. You know, the dynamics of of colonization were were not. Identical in Angola and the Gold Coast and Sierra Leone, but in, in matters of med- uh, health and medicine, I think uh, you know it boiled down to these very basic questions of daily survival. Uh, and as was the case in Angola, I think the uh, I think African women played very important roles, not only as as providers of care uh, and providers of simple herbal medicines, but also as go betweens. Uh, in facilitating Europeans access uh, to more established healers uh, in, in more serious cases of illness. So, you know, in these chapters, I, I also wanted to push against this this idea of history as a, as a nationalistic science. And uh, I think that for Atlantic Africa, you know, our source base needs to represent the, the various groups that were present on the coast. So that's why I, I decided to bring not only the British, uh but also, you know, Dutch and and Danish materials from the ghost, Gold Coast, uh, as well as bits of, of of Swedish material for Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I'm I'm not saying that I do this exhaustively, and I'm I'm sure others can take this forward and and study the archives in in much more detail. Than I did for for West Africa, uh, and if anything, I hope that this uh, you know the chapters will inspire others to work on these topics for for West Africa
1: mm-hmm. <clears throat> do you um uh, uh, in terms of the the you know how they it, it, like you're saying in in a way that it's, it, it in answer to to that original question that was posed to you um again it, it sort of shows that regardless of the um of the you know the particular nation or 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 company that was uh, supporting uh, each of these colonization ventures um the, the the ultimate uh need to to survive in this environments uh, uh was uh important i mean like was was more prominent and was really behind the interest in, in this these uh, medical findings, um, and and ultimately, I think what was also very interesting here and uh, is uh, it, the the use of um, sort of these interpreters, like either in the case of, of of the Gold Coast, when you talk about like women and and, and like the the the, the 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 clear presence of of women and and. <clears throat> In, in in the case of sierra leone this this particular interpreters uh, sorry yeah in, uh, informants uh, that uh, that you mentioned uh, sort of mysterious figures that we hear some names for them but we don't actually know who they are um it's again it's such an interesting way or i think it adds a lot to this understanding that um uh, they're uh, even though there's all of these sources uh, come from European, uh, from Europeans. Uh, if we read them um, carefully, and 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 the way that they're to read them is to understand that they are somehow tran- transcribing uh, these voices, these African voices, and and in that regard, like the understanding of the differences of of these different Europeans interlocutors, also helps us be more careful readers of these African voices, and and I was wondering how you navigated that, you know, obviously you've spent many, many years deep in, in the Portuguese sources. Did you find having to change, uh, uh, how difficult was it to change to all of a sudden having to read these Swedish or, or Dutch or, or English sources uh, as, a, as a means to try to understand uh, what these African voices were, uh, you know, the tone or, or the information that these African sources were, were providing?
2: Yeah, that, that part wasn't so so difficult Uh uh, one of what I remember, one of one of the courses I took as as a student in Helsinki was so so we had a course on on the Nordic or the, the Scandinavian presence in in uh, Africa. So I was already a little bit uh, familiar with the with the context and and also with some of the sources. Um, it was very difficult, you know, the to find the it, and as you said the, the African African voice. in in those European sources is is very difficult. So we have this, for example, in the cold coast, in the Danish sources, I found these uh, mentions that Africans were acquiring European medical techniques or they were acquiring uh, medicines from the slave ports and ships. But these these are very, very sketchy mentions uh, and what what was interesting was that you know at times it seemed that the Africans were more interested in experimenting with with the European than the Europeans uh, were using their their own medicine <laughs> in a way that you know this uh, you, many of these in many of these uh, sources you know so the Europeans are very skeptical about about their own own surgeons and and about their own barbers, but mm-hmm. Africans then, for for one reason or another, uh, decide that it might be a good idea to, you know, and it's again, it boils down to this, you know, the idea of pluralism that if something doesn't work, then you try to find something else that might work, you know, something else that might offer the cure. Mm-hmm. Um, again comparatively speaking we don't have the same kind of of rich botanical descriptions for for west Africa that that the capuchins were producing in the kingdom of Congo and we also don't have the same same kind of of these uh amateur pharmacopoeias which which can provide information on angolan medicinals but even even for the cold coast i i found that i i can take uh, take the material approach and uh i i'm sure that if anyone follows these trails in in the british archives for example uh they will find much more evidence than i was able to cover
1: mm-hmm.
2: and 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 the case of sierra leone again interesting from from the comparative perspective uh because you know as as you said about the chronology it's it's a, it's it's a later uh development and and we can see these synchronous developments in 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 angola so when it comes to to scientific and natural historical interest of africa and of course this has to do with with the linear systematization and and the linear networks that sought to catalog the the natural resources and and the animals and the plants on a global scale mm-hmm. uh, so we have so we have all these linear uh, disciples uh, Linnaeus uh, apostles roaming these extra-European landscapes. We have people like Sparrman uh, Anders Sparrman in, in South Africa, and Soonberg and in, in the Far East, and finally Adam Afzelius in Sierra Leone, mm-hmm. who's actually part of the the Banksian networks. You know, the bank, part of the English uh, or the British networks, and and working for and sponsored by the by the company in Sierra Leone. So mostly, you know, Aftelius in, in Freetown, he, what he does, he sits, you, you know, when you read his journal, it seems that Aftelius sits in a hut in Freetown and he has all these local assistants. You know, the locals are bringing him specimen and he, he does the classifying. He sits there and, and proceeds to classify uh, these plants and goes on to document their local uses uh, and, and local names if the informants can tell them. And he shows that you know the, the journal shows that two of these assistants, especially two which I focus more on, uh, are, are trusted servants, do most of the collecting, and we only know them by their their servant names, so Peter and and Rufa. Um, and despite you know this this constant you know daily interactions, uh, Aufstelius doesn't, or at least the, the part of the journal that survives. Doesn't give any any clues to their identity, you know, the, the African identities of these of these men. So, for example, we don't know their original names. Uh, I suspect these these the, the, the names that are used were given by perhaps by Aftelius himself. Mm-hmm. himself. Nevertheless, combining all these uh, all these uh, descriptions, we can again see the widespread and and very common reliance on on African sources of healing, uh, African healing practices uh, in the Atlantic spaces.
1: Um, I mean, now that you, when you just recently just mentioned that you started your training in in linguistics, it sort of explains also a lot that the use that you make of, uh, of just words, you know, the yeah. linguistic, uh, it, it just provides like a, a nice uh, sort of uh, grounding uh, source uh, for some of the, the work that you do. And, and, and I figured it, it also might have helped, uh, like in, in, in grounding uh, the ideas of, you know, change and pluralism. Uh, into this area. And I imagine, like you also said, the the, the reading of all these different diverse sources, uh, even in European languages. Um, uh, and moving a little bit more to that, um, you, your next couple of chapters deal precisely with sort of like uh, the, the European side, you know, the, mm. uh, the introduction of... Uh, Portuguese or European pluralism uh, in, in Africa and where, uh, what are some of the examples that we see uh, of this? And, and in this chapters, I, f- I felt that it was interesting to think about um, your idea of, of African, you know, you, you mentioned that it is not easy to, to trace changes in African medical practice uh, precisely because the sources are, are not as rich as we would like them to be. But, uh, despite that, you you I think you're able to 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 suggest um, that um, these are not uh, and 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 i I like that and often in the book you talk about you use the word traditional and 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 quotation marks <laughs> so as to say you know let's not think about about this something as a closed system. you know, this was obviously mm-hmm. a dynamic system. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how in these two chapters you you, now fit in and, uh, the how european practices Euro, and or practices that were coming from the Atlantic world uh try to fit in um, and and modify or or affect uh African medical practice um, as you describe it
2: hmm. yeah it's it's again I think it's it's a very interesting question because then we go to another type of source. And mm-hmm. And we can uh, what I used a lot in the in the book were these, or or in these chapters were the you know the Bo- Portuguese censuses for uh, West Central Africa. so so all these, for example, all the and you know statistics for mm-hmm. for medicinals that were traded into 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 Luanda. so I, I showed there that you know the chinkona uh, bark was arriving from Brazil. Throughout the 18th century, and in, in more extensive numbers in the, in the uh, early 19th century, so we have that very long history of, of, of these uh, materials, you know, American materials being used also in Africa, which hasn't really been uh, paid attention uh, to before. And then, then in the censuses, we have the I showed the the presence of these African barbers, you know, trained by uh, trained by by the Portuguese, really barber surgeons who are not only present in in the on, you know on the coast in in Luanda and in Benguela, but also a practice you know European medical practice that was also spreading to the interior, and uh, and you know we can we can see traces of that in the 19th century you know when when european when portuguese travelers uh go to the interior of africa they they realize that you know these uh these barbers are already here you know they 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 can offer us something that uh we are familiar with but i i also want to say another thing one more thing about the 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 linguistic sources, uh, and, mm-hmm. and the linguistic, uh, materials or, or the, you know, this kind of, of, uh, tracing a word. And, and I have in, I think it's in the sixth chapter, maybe I talk mm-hmm. about this, uh, African, uh, melancholy or this, you know, the, the disease of Banzo, uh, yes, which is very intriguing because, you know, it often I would all only have the one word, you know, I, I would have uh, I would have the word, but I would have no explanation in the sources, mm-hmm. uh, and the, you know the, sor- uh, the explanations for the word uh, or the medical, uh, like uh, uh, you know the me- you know the medical idea and explanation emerge much later uh, in the sources than than the the, the idea of this disease. So I, it has a you know all the it seems that all the people who are using the word know exactly what I what it means <laughs> <laughs> already you know already in the late 17th century but then the first uh, physician to write about the the Banzo disease comes in the 1760s or so and it seems that this uh, this uh, the idea of this disease was very uh, very common you know uh, in and where it was shared by uh, by by Central Africans and the Portuguese you know the the word comes from uh, uh, from uh, the Bantu word "banza," meaning home or village. Mm-hmm. So we don't have a description of of how this disease concept emerged, but I, I would speculate that it was uh, coined when the when the slaves were marched to the coast and and taken to the slave ships, and they were crying out this word "banza," uh, and the Portuguese take it and and they make a verb out of it. So they they start calling this uh, ailment uh, banzar. So they, they are saying that uh, someone is banzando, literally mm-hmm. someone is suffering from panza. Mm-hmm. uh suffering from this intense longing for home. And we can you know we can use the modern word depression. Uh, we can talk about melancholia, uh, but. If we want to find out what the people in the seventeenth or uh, the eighteenth century thought about it, we also need to think about this etymology uh, mm-hmm. and understand that at the root of this word is is homesickness, uh, and that of course is something that anyone uh, can uh, suffer from. You know, black or white can suffer from from banza, and and the Portuguese did also suffer from it, uh, uh, according. You know, some, sometimes they, they write that someone is ill because they have the banzo. Uh, hmm. But what happens when when the physician, Damian Cosme, writes about this in the 1760s, then we can see that this concept has really, um, it has become racialized in the sense that all of a sudden it's it's not the, the, the white people anymore who suffer from it. But now it's only the blacks who have the, uh, who can have this illness hmm. uh, begins to be classified as a disease of the blacks, right? Uh, the concept becomes racialized, and and this from this time onward, you know, medical doctors also begin to pay more attention to panzo and and similar mental ailments, not only in Africa but also among slave populations in the in the New World, and uh, I think that's uh, one of the most important uh, examples of. Of why this kind of you know why 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 we need to pay attention to the to the linguistic size and you know the historical linguistic I, I wish I could do more of it and <laughs> and would have the you know the proper you know the the time and the proper skills to do it uh, mm. in, in a much much greater uh, detail but yeah well
1: I mean I think like I said I found it very grounding and I thought it was a, a good a good place to start in, in, in yeah. the places where you used it um, and you you finished your uh, with the last chapter uh, talking about a magic medical geography and you know you you have started from the very start one of the recurrent characteristics uh, of, of of this pluralism particularly the African pluralism is that it's very mobile and and it's sort of that this this uh, medical medical uh, Healers and professionals, basically, they just move around um, uh, quite significantly. Um, but in in this chapter, you you sort of is it, in, in a little bit. It's a little bit of a follow up to the sex, you know, where you talk about the limitations of the uh, uh, humor system uh, mm-hmm. of medicine, and in in a way, the the importance that was eventually given to this notion of the environment as being like the most important determinant of. The ability to stay healthy or to cure disease, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, but in a way also this this chapter I felt uh, helps finally uh, find uh, like where the what was the final place that was given uh, to uh, to all this knowledge you know that that was accumulated uh, about Africa and and this kind of um, sort of tension between. How in some ways this knowledge proved to be so useful, even when it uh, came to be known in, in sort of uh, European circles, but in a way also re- retained this level of uh, being useful in, in a specific locality. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how, how this chapter uh, came to be and conclude your, your basically encapsulate your conclusions from the rest of the book?
2: Yeah, so, so how geographical space, uh, environment and health were conceptualized not in, only in Central Africa but also in, in the Portuguese. I, I try to write about how it's conceptualized in the Portuguese Atlantic at large.. Uh, and I you know, maybe conceptualization is, is not even a good word here, because <laughs> I think it's more about imagination. In, in, in the end, it's, it's more about imagination and images. Uh, that became attached to certain locations and and certain regions over the centuries. And this this was the part where it was the most hardest uh, to discover if these images, to what what extent these images were shared between Africans and the Portuguese. Uh, So in in contrast contrast to the sharing of medicinals and and disease concepts, uh, here the Europeans might have been Building up their own set of rules in a way, uh, instead of eagerly going to to local informants uh, to learn about healthy and healing uh, versus diseased and dangerous environments. And we have all we have to factor all these uh, adaptations and migrations that, uh, for you know, for the African side uh, that had already taken place. You know they you know the popul- the local population had been there for uh centuries and and millennia before the before the Europeans arrived so this probably was very developed you know had already been de- developed among the locals and and the Europeans with a different background uh, had to had to go through those adaptations and and in the end adapted very poorly uh to the new environment that they that they encountered. Uh, I think the basic uh, or, or the important point here to, to note is that there emerged this clear division of the of the land uh, or, or the environment. So, so we have this idea of, of the healthy coast or the littoral and then the very dangerous and uh, disease written interior. You know, interior was always more more harmful and more dangerous. And if you wanted to recuperate, uh, recuperate from illness, you had to seek treatment on the coast. And and as I as I conclude, uh, the you know the the Europeans often didn't have any other option but to go away from Angola. You know, seek out a cure in in Brazil or go travel back to Europe. Uh, And this type, you know, again, talking about these continuities uh, in the long durée, it's very interesting to note that this type of traveling for health causes, uh, of course, was also very typical for Europeans in colonial Africa, you know, in in a later period. Uh, So one of the questions for further research uh, would be uh, to look at this you know, to what extent these uh, early modern imaginations carried on uh, to later times?
1: Mm. Well, I mean, in in some ways, even at really later times, I mean, uh, I mean, it is it, it it is still a common trope. I mean, I remember, uh, at least in Mexico, <laughs> you know, that uh, yeah. my my grandmother saying things like that. You know, it's like oh what you need is some time at the beach and you'll be fine or, mm. um, you know, like always the coastal areas were, um, more, you know, maybe not necessarily salubrious, but at least at the sea, the sea, the air of the sea and the water, the sea water was always had some kind of healing qualities, um, as, as opposed to wherever you happen to be. So oh, I, right. I thought that that was, um, yeah it's like you said, it's like this these things that we don't necessarily know where they come from, but uh, somehow they persist. Um, uh, so you you conclude uh, I find the conclusion is really interesting because the, you know you you spend quite a bit of time talking about all the methodological methodological challenges that uh, that you um, that that you basically want to make sure we all are aware of and, and but regardless of of uh, not regardless, but in 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 light of those, um, I seem to feel like uh, you feel like there's a lot of, um, like you said it, it, what you said about those two chapters, you know, that you still feel there's uh, quite a bit of work that can be done with regard to some of these problems, not not just in in the Gold Coast or Sierra Leone. In regards with this question, but more importantly, I think your 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 concept of pluralism and the importance of uh, sort of realizing uh the contributions of both Europeans and Africans to this uh, world of um uh, medical uh, uh medical intervention and and, and and medical ideas in this world. Uh, Is it, something that you know yet needs, uh, uh, despite the, the the challenges in the documentation. There's there's still a lot of room um, to think about these questions. Uh, can you tell us a little bit? Um, you know, how, you, how do you see things moving forward, uh, whether in your own research or, or what? How, what do you see valuable avenues for people to explore uh, in this in this arena?
2: Yeah, what what I really didn't do in the book, which I think is a really important question, is is you know I I end the story in the first half of the nineteenth century, and I think it's really important to look what what comes next. I mean, I think this, I think a lot of the and and the historiography has already shown that you know a lot of a lot of things changed uh you know as medical technologies developed in the in the 19th and, and the 20th century so uh, i think it's very it would be very important to to carry and i would like to also do it for angola you know to carry this this research uh, uh further in time you know closer to our day and see what happened after 1850 and how how all these ideas of of, uh, you know, the, like the idea of the of the witch doctor in uh, in colonial Africa
1: mm-hmm.
2: emerged, and you know all these discourses on on the other uh, continue to develop, and you know took this also. I think take this story uh, that I was trying to tell. They also take it to another direction. Um, so. I mentioned in the in the beginning about this uh, the, the the Finnish connection in in Namibia, mm-hmm. and that's something I began to work on, uh, particularly the, the, the Finnish medical mission in Southwest Africa in the in the early 20th century, uh, and of course coronavirus uh, messed with my plans to travel to Namibia, <laughs> but we have to see how that how that project uh, evolves mm-hmm. in the future.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, I was thinking a lot about this uh, because, uh, I mean, like you mentioned, even in your book, this idea of Africa uh, having not been, uh, you know, colonized to the extent, for instance, that the Americans were colonized earlier, precisely because of, you know, the the amount of disease that Europeans uh, would suffer uh, when they enter some of African environments, and. And in a way, this notion that this didn't happen, uh, I mean, like full fledged colonization didn't happen until the nineteenth century, when European technology was able to support uh, a more um, sustained colonial colonial project. Uh, and and how these, uh, how your book in a way sort of makes us think a little bit more carefully about that narrative, isn't it? That that maybe um, it makes us forget that. Europeans might have struggled a little bit, but in many of these areas they did uh, manage to figure out ways to to um to live and to survive. and they did so precisely because they they took advantage of the knowledge that already existed on the ground mm-hmm. um, and not only that, but that said knowledge contributed to broader uh, 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 traditions of of medical understanding in, in other words that uh, the the Europeans were not the only ones who had cracked the knot of how to survive in Africa. You know, yeah. Africans had done it long before that. So, um, so yeah, it definitely made me um, sort of rethink a couple of things that I'd say in my lectures um, um, when I teach. So thank you for that. Um, I think I've taken quite a bit of your time. Uh, Would you like to tell us a little bit uh, what you're working on is it just this part project uh, on the finnish medical mission or is there anything else on the works
2: yeah as as i said in the beginning so the african history crew in finland is (laughs) is, uh, it's, it's a small community and i also feel that we have a responsibility to engage with the larger public here and and show how and why African history matters. So I'm working with some of my colleagues on a on a book or or a synthesis about demography and health uh in African he uh African history. Mm-hmm. Of course, not relevant to the international listeners out there, but at the same time it's it's something I hope uh more Africanist scholars would take up and, and think about how to center the African experience and make it relevant so that it speaks to to a larger public and, and to readers and viewers and listeners, whichever mm. medium you choose to use.
1: Yep. I agree. I couldn't agree more with that. <laughs> um, well, uh, both of those projects sound um, uh, like great, great too, and we will be looking forward to them. Um, Thank you so much for being with us today. I really enjoyed it and I really enjoyed the book. So thank you for the book too. Um, Take care and we hope to talk to you soon.
2: Thank you, Esperanza.